Um, Today we continue our study in the doctrine of salvation. And last week, Pastor Ron took us through the subject of justification. Uh, Today we'll be discussing specifically the subject of adoption. Uh, Now it seems that the subject of adoption, when you you look at... uh, you know, theology and the history of, of, of Protestant theology, it seems that the subject of adoption is often overlooked uh, when many theologians talk about the whole subject of salvation. Uh, we tend to think about all the other aspects, right? Regeneration, uh, sanctification, um, justification. But adoption seems to be overlooked often. Uh, but it's a very significant part of salvation. Often when we think of God's act in saving men, like I said, we think of justification. However, adoption is very important as it moves beyond that legal declaration that we've now been made right before God. And it touches on more of the personal aspects of our relationship with God. Uh, In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that he prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook of life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. End quote. And, uh, Uh, He says that in saying that this idea that we're children of God and God is our Father, that's a very Christian distinctive. When it comes to man's relationship with God, many religions formulate ways for man to gain favor with God. And and this essentially means that their relationship with God is only on the basis of regulations and formulas that would allow them to gain some level of connection with their so-called God. On the contrary, the very heart of Christianity, and specifically Christianity, is the fact that man can receive the grace of being known by God intimately. And that's that's specifically a Christian concept. Uh, This intimate relationship is like that of a father and a son. And all this is found in the doctrine of adoption, which is distinctly a Christian doctrine. Today I want us to explore that subject. This is not an exhaustive study on the doctrine of adoption. However, I do want to cover at least three key points, and you'll see it on your handout. The first point is adoption in Scripture and the ancient world. And in that point, I'm just going to talk about adoption um, and how it was understood in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and also how it was understood in the ancient world in general. And then uh, point number two is a biblical theology of adoption. We're going to go from understanding what it was un- how it was understood historically to um, how God, the Holy Spirit, who uh, basically uh, wrote the whole Bible and was the primary author of the Bible, how he wanted us to understand adoption. Um, a theology of adoption, as opposed to just this, uh, you know, human um, concept of adopting a child and so on and so forth. There's a theology of adoption. And then point number three, point number three is the privileges and benefits of adoption. And here's where I'm, I'm, I'm talking about adoption as 
uh, as Christians adopted by God, spiritually speaking, and what are the benefits of being adopted by God. So let's go on to the first point. Adoption in Scripture and the ancient world. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern times, adoption did occur like we have adoption today. However, to my knowledge, I'm not sure if uh, it was an adoption that was done through a particular legal system. I don't know. I know that's how we adopt today. Um, Yet in the ancient Near East, adoption was primarily for the purpose of maintaining one's family line. That was the real reason why people adopted. This was the, the primary reason And uh, there was even a common way that people did it. The patriarch of the family, right, the head or the father, could claim a child as his own and place him as the heir if a biological one was not living. In other words, if you saw that you were not bearing any children or if none were born as males, then they would go and adopt. This patriarch would claim the potential adoptee as their own promised them an inheritance, and would even discipline the child as their own, right? They would take him in, he would be disciplined like if he was his own child, but the point was that since he didn't have a natural child, this one child that he adopted would take on the family name as, as the patriarch would pass away. He would take on the family name, he would carry on the inheritance, all that was built by that family, right? Uh, all of what they've invested in, uh, this, this one uh, adoptee would take that and carry that on forth in his future family. Um, so again, the, uh, patri- the patriarch would carry on um, or, or pass on his inheritance to them. And the adopted child was provided the inheritance, he was provided safety, a family name, and discipline in return for carrying that family name. And it was common that the child would provide a proper burial for his parents, right? That's one of the concerns of the parents, that my child properly uh, bury me uh, when I pass away, when I go. Now, it wasn't always a child that would be adopted. Oftentimes, it was an adult that was adopted. And this often happened when the head of the household of that adult would die. And he, he would be adopted into a new family, right? So... Let's say you have a, a young man or, uh, yeah, a young man and his family passes away, then he was available for adoption and a family would take him in. Uh, and, and they would receive a new family name that would further represent their change of family status and social position. The privilege of being the heir of the family name and inheritance could as, could as well be extended to a household servant or a slave if no heir was born into that family. Right? So let's say you had a servant in your house. Oftentimes, that servant would carry on the name and the inheritance if that family did not bear any more children. Now, here's an interesting caveat to the adoption process that I, that I just mentioned. If an heir were to be born in that household after the adoption, then the adoptee would relinquish their inherit, inherited rights. So Let's just say I have a family. I'm sorry. Let's just say me and my wife can't have any children, and I adopt someone, bring them in, and I, I give them the inheritance. If later on we end up getting pregnant, and I end up having a child, he's a, he's a boy, I, I, I can take that inheritance from the one that I adopted and, and say, okay, I'm going to relinquish your rights. I'm going to give it to my actual son. It, it, it's sad, but, but it, it happened. Uh, once you were adopted, and then later... 
your adopted parents end up with a new baby boy, they could relinquish your rights uh, to the inheritance and give it to their new baby boy. And we see that kind of thing in uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 4. Uh, can someone read that passage? After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Um, sorry, I'm reading out of my book. <laughs> it's all good. From that After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offering, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Thank you. Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a situation right there. Here, here we see Eliezer of Damascus, who was a slave born into Abraham's house, was to be their heir unless Abraham and Sarah had a child. If a son were to be born, then he would replace Eliezer as the rightful heir, uh, which we see in this case. Now, several other similar examples of individuals being brought into a family for that purpose of inheritance include Moses, Ephraim and Manasseh. In the second chapter of Exodus, Moses is brought into Pharaoh's household. You guys remember the story of Moses. Uh, he was given his name by Pharaoh's daughter and then raised up in the house as a potential heir. We encounter uh, an intra-family adoption in Genesis when Jacob takes parental authority over Ephraim and Manasseh. He makes them his sons and promises each one of them an inheritance equal to as if they were their natural-born sons. Jacob formalizes it by saying, your two sons are mine. And you see that idea here. <clears throat> I'll read it. It says, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the child that you father after them shall be, I'm sorry, shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So those are just some examples of adoption. Now in the scriptures, there's another kind of adoption that goes beyond the temporal inclusion into a family and temporal inheritances that we know these kinds of inheritance just rot, right? The scriptures describe it as they rot and moths eat them up. Uh, because they're just temporal inheritances, and, and that doesn't devalue them. I mean, it's, they're still of much value. But there's, there's a kind of adoption that has eternal significance. They speak more on a divine adoption with eternal inheritances that do not rot and have everlasting value. And the first explicit divine example of adoption is seen in, in, in Exodus 4, 22 to 23. I'll put it up there. It says, here God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and deliver his people out of Egypt. What's striking in this passage is God's passion in defending who he calls his firstborn son. Notice the language here and notice how God feels about the, the, the people whom he adopted. It says here, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, 
Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. And that is the attitude that God has in defending his children. God claims the Israelites as his own and immediately starts the process of rescuing and redeeming them from slavery. Right? We can see that from the beginning, God was already showing his intent. And his intent was making a people for himself to call them sons. And we see that God was dead serious about making this happen. He was so serious that he even threatens to kill their first sons if they don't release his sons. That makes me look up, look up to God and say, I want to be a father like that. Uh, I want to I take my children as serious as God has uh, taken his children um, in, in such a serious, uh, loving relationship uh, that we see him having with Israel. Uh, God directly applies this adoption formula when he adopts David's son, for example, in, uh, in, in Solomon, David's son Solomon in uh, 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to show you. This is another verse where we see adoption in a divine way, where God is adopting someone as his own child. It says here, when your days are uh, fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's talking about Solomon here. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Notice how he's treating those whom he adopts, right? He allows punishment to be received to his children, right? For discipline purposes. But notice how he says, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men and stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And and that's to show uh, the distinction between God's love for everyone and just anyone and God's distinct love for those who he chooses to call his sons. Uh, God adopting Solomon guarantees David's family line, and he promises his steadfast love will never leave him. God will give him, right, an inheritance. He'll discipline him if he needs to, yet his love won't depart from him. He even renames him Jedidiah. This is Solomon. He, He renames him which means loved of God. He, 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 he displays that even in the name changing of Solomon. And you see that in 2 Samuel 12, 25. Now, <clears throat> here's another verse. In Hosea 11, uh, 1 through 9, uh, the theme of Israel as the son of God is developed further. God shows his love for them uh, and, un, and his unwillingness to abandon his son Israel. And, and listen to the kind of love that God has for his son as he talks about Israel. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll get someone to read that. Would, you, would someone volunteer to read that? When Israel was a child, I loved, I loved him, and 
out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Yeah, isn't it interesting that when God places his love on someone, it has nothing to do with what they can give to God. He just decides to place his love on someone or a group of people, and that's it. He, he, now, again, <clears throat> let me back up and say this. It's not that God is just randomly choosing people. Like, he doesn't put his hand in a basket and see what comes out. Oh, Israel, I'm going to love them for no real reason. I'm, I just pick them, and that's because I have a sovereign choice. No, he, he doesn't, although he doesn't reveal us what the real reason is, we know at least in Scripture that he doesn't choose them because they're good. Uh, in fact, this is a, this is a demonstration of what, what we just read, is that Israel was a people that kept going back to idolatry. They kept abandoning God. And God, because he placed his love on them, that was it. That was the end of the story. Uh, he placed his love, and nothing's going to change that. Now, it doesn't mean he wasn't punishing them. He wasn't correcting them. He wasn't trying to steer them in the right path. Uh, he was there for them. But, but look at the language that he uses here. Uh, look at verse 8. It says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I do that? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He was compassionate about Israel. He loved Israel. And it was simply because he placed his love upon them. And it's a good example when you think about, like, me in, in my marriage or, or our love relationships. Um, it, we love because we love. Or that's how we ought to love. Not because the person can provide anything for us. But godly love is modeled after the way that God loves us. In fact, we can't love accurately if, if, if God uh, didn't display that or uh, allow us to partake in that, that, uh, that kind of love. And so we see that special love for his people in God's unique love for Israel. Uh, again, considering the fact that they abandoned God, even after he's, he's rescued them from slavery, he, he disciplines them for their disobedience, yet we read an impli implicit divine refusal to abandon them, even though they have abandoned their father. Now this passage we just read is filled with so much sonship language. However, the love and compassion that God has for them is probably the clearest example of adoption as God has taken a low people and given them the benefits that are usually reserved for, like, close family, right? Yet this is how God chooses to love his people. When he loves his people, he pours out on them benefits, undeserving benefits, 
And that's just the way that he loves. He adopts them as their own. Now, with that said, let's, let's look at the second point you'll see in your handout, which is a biblical theology of adoption. All right, we, we talked about adoption from a biblical historical perspective, but let's talk about the theological significance. A biblical theology of adoption. Now, like every theological development, you'll have like your liberal Protestants pushing a kind of mushy doctrine of adoption, which would normally include the whole world as children of God under some kind of universal fatherhood. Um, and I would have to guess that this universal fatherhood of God towards everyone would result in a kind of universal brotherhood between all mankind, leading into a kind of Unitarian universalism. This kind of theology makes churches into a bunch of uh, alcoholic anonymous groups or self-help groups instead of real Christian churches that preach the word and administer the ordinances. And, and, and this is why when we think about the doctrine of adoption, we must not let the beauty of this doctrine, the fact that God adopts and he makes people his sons, we must not let the beauty of it be adulterated. As if everyone in the world gets to enjoy the benefits of being God's adopted child. That's not true. We have to stop implying to people that they are God's child in that unique sense, right? If in fact they're not. Not everyone is a child of God in that way. The doctrine of adoption is a beautiful doctrine, but it's also an exclusive doctrine. Only those who are born again will be counted as children of God and heirs of the kingdom. Now, <clears throat> let's begin by looking at some verses that are foundational to the, the theological side of, of this concept of adoption. Uh, the first one is Ephesians 1, verses 5 through 6. Can someone read that? In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. <clears throat> Amen. So you see that uh, word adoption there. Uh, in love he predestined us for adoption. This means that adoption was his purpose before you were even born. Um, he, those who are saved today, if you have saving faith, um, God was not surprised that you were going to be born again. He didn't say, oh, wow, my, this guy, you know, uh, came to faith today. Yay. He, I mean, he's, he's excited. But he wasn't surprised. This was part of his plan before the foundation of the world. That on this day, at this time, by the preaching of this pastor or the, the, the sharing the gospel from this friend, uh, you would come to Christ. And in that moment, God would not only make you righteous, right? He, he not only declares you righteous and saved by virtue of what Christ said on the cross, but he made you his son. And, and on that moment... Um, you, you became a child of God, and this was predestined. Uh, and this was, this was for the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace. Here's another verse, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Can someone read that? <clears throat> but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Amen. So here we, we get a, a, a good breakdown of this idea of adoption. 
Um, God saves us from the slavery of the law, uh, and, and he receives us as, as sons. Uh, it says that the, when we are adopted, the spirit of God uh, indwells in us. And uh, it says here, in, in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Uh, this, this, ta- this speaks on the, the new relationship that we have with God. You know, outside of Christ, there's still this legal issue between you and God that you, um, it, you're, you're essentially in the courtroom with God where you have to get things straightened out. And now that you're born again and God has justified you, um, he counted his son guilty instead of you. You now have a, a special intimate relationship with God where you can cry, Abba, Father. Uh, John 1.12. Uh, can someone read that? Amen. Again, so all who received him, who believed in his name, have the right, uh, have, he gave the right to become children of God. And the last one here is 1 John 3.1. I'll read that. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Uh, And by these verses, we see that uh, we as Christians are adopted by God. And this concept of being children of God should blow our minds. It's one thing that, you know, God would accept us and bring us into heaven, and that's the end of the story. But God has made us his children. Now, we may not be Israelites in the physical sense, but we are counted as sons by faith. And we see this in Galatians 3.26. It says, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. Uh, and, and this is important to understand uh, because it, it's, it's not that uh, God is declaring anyone uh, his children, but that when he transforms your heart and you place your faith in Christ, because Christ is the true son of God, we're counted as sons because of our union with with Christ. Now, uh, a couple of other things. It's important to understand that adoption is not the same as regeneration, which we talked about regeneration a few uh, lessons ago. And oftentimes we think or assume that adoption and regeneration are synonymous because regeneration is part of the doctrine of salvation as well as adoption is. However, we must understand that regeneration and adoption have their distinct characteristics. Both of them, each one of them, deal with different problems. So when you look at the layout of all the categories that are within the teaching of uh, salvation, adoption is one category that's within that. Because adoption deals with a different kind of problem. For example, adoption deals with our status, taking us from alienation to cherished children, right? Before you were adopted, you could not approach God. You know, everyone prays, right? Even the unbeliever oftentimes cries out to the mysterious unknown God in heaven. But not everyone uh, is able to pray in a real way where they can approach God in their current state, right? They are alienated. God is uh, at enmity with him or her, the unbeliever, because they refuse to repent. They refuse to turn to God with a repented heart. Uh, So again, alienation. In adoption, we now become cherished children. 
Now, regeneration deals with our nature, right? It changes us from God-haters to lovers of our Heavenly Father. That's the difference, right? One is about status. One is about the condition of the heart. Some helpful keys about the distinctions are that regeneration affects our nature while adoption affects our relationship. Regeneration makes us partakers of the divine nature while adoption makes us partakers of the divine affections, right? We now um, are able to intimately approach God. Um, It's not just a legal uh, matter. Another thing to keep in mind is that adoption is not, we we said it's not regeneration, but it's also not justification, right? We know that justification is of first importance because it it meets our most basic need, spiritual need, which is forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That's what justification does. We're justified. We've now been forgiven. However, in the words of Jeremiah Burroughs, which is, he's a, he's a Puritan, he says, justification is uh, conceived of in terms of law, while adoption is understood in terms of love. Justification sees God as a judge, while adoption sees God as a father. One important similarity between justification and adoption is the fact that we receive our adoption, and this is important, pay attention here, we receive our adoption by imputation. You can write that down. You can Google it. (laughs) We receive our adoption by, by imputation and not by infusion like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The difference is that imputation, right? We receive adoption by imputation, and imputation simply means that we are counted as sons, right? We are counted as sons. God says, okay, he's a bad boy, but I'm counting him as my son, right? He doesn't infuse adoption in you. He counts you as your son. As his son, excuse me. Now, infusion, which is the wrong one, infusion means that we receive graces that are applied to us through sacraments that make us more and more into sons. And that's not true, right? In other words, believers are not progressively adopted, becoming more and more like children of God. No. But rather, God counts us as children of God instantly in salvation, right away. You, you're born again, and automatically you're a child of God. That, that blows my mind. When I think about when I became born again, um, and, and I can't quite pinpoint when that was, but I, I remember even as a Christian, there was still disobedience in me. Now, I, I, my, my heart changed. I wanted to pursue God because I was born again. I wanted to live holy. But there was still sin in me. And God still counted me as his child. And because of the work of regeneration and because of the work of adoption, that moment when I was born again, God counted me as his child. That's, that's, that's amazing. And so again, we are counted. We are, the, the, the adoption, the sonship is imputed to us and not uh, infused to us. The biblical understanding of adoption is no more subject to degrees than our justification, Right? When sinners believe, they are made full children of God, and they remain in that state. Just like justification, 
right? When you're saved, you're declared righteous in that moment. And likewise, you're made a child of God in that moment. And we become sons and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Not progressively, but instantly. So the question then is, how and why are we adopted? Paul's teaching on the doctrine of adoption can be best understood in the context of adoption or the ideas of adoption in the Roman culture during that time and, and its effects. So when we think about, when we read Paul's writings and he talks about adoption, we have to try to understand what did he mean by adoption? Uh, what was adoption in his time, in his culture? Um, you know, we read Paul in the New Testament talking about adoption. We have to keep in mind his context, as well as uh, adoption in, in, in the way that it was written even prior to his, um, his letters. So I, I can't go through the whole context because of the sake of time, but I'll at least point out three things that we can definitively say um, is part of Paul's understanding of adoption. Number one, Paul understood that when someone was adopted, their old family ties were broken, right? They're, they're coming out of another family and they're being adopted. They're, bro they're brought in into a new one. So anything, any, their identity from that old family, it's done. They, they, that's broken. Point number two is that they were brought into a new family. That's a definitive uh, aspect of how Paul understood adoption. And number three is uh, commitments were made between the adoptee and his new family, right? He was given a new identity. There were new commitments to this new family. And Paul talks about our new commitments into our new family in uh, 1 John 3.10. Now, thinking about us, we've been adopted in Christ. We're brought into his family. What does that mean for us? What are the stipulations? What does it mean to be part of God's family? And it says here, 1 John 3.10. Uh, ten. Can someone read it? By this it is evident who sorry. By sorry. this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Yeah, so uh, when when God took us from slavery, right? He took just the way that he did with uh, Israel. And in our case it was slavery to sin, right? Before Christ our wills constantly brought us back to a sinful life. That was our, the disposition of our heart. God released. He cut that tie, right, in our hearts. It's a miracle when he does that. He brings us into his new family, and he saves us by grace. He declares us righteous and everything. So you feel good. You're free from sin. But what are the stipulations now? You, you can just do whatever you want now, you're, now that you're a child of God? No, he, says, he calls us to live holy. Um, and he doesn't just call us to live holy. He gives us those affections. He does so by putting the spirit in us. And, and you'll notice as a Christian, you, you, you start wondering why you're just drawn to the Bible or why you have this uh, desire to be with the people of God. And you wonder, why is, that, uh, why is that in me? I don't know why I have this craving for being with the people of God. And again, uh, it, it says it's evident who are the children of God. He's not even telling you what to do. He's just saying, look, this is what they look like. And, and you're going to see that that's, that's the fruit that they bear. They, they, they stop practicing unrighteousness. They stop following their old father, the devil. And they start following uh, their heavenly father. Now, going back to the first steps. The first step in this process 
is that, that breaking of old familiar bonds and, and that cancellation of any kind of debt. When, when you were taken out of your old family, if you had any debt with them, any issues with them, that's been broken. Anything that you, anything that uh, placed you in a position that, that uh, made you a slave to that situation that you come from, whatever, whatever your background is, when you're brought into the family of God, that's broken. You're not even counted uh, as one who did all those things or had all that kind of debt. You're brought into a new family, and there's a cancellation of those familiar bonds. This is significantly special to us as Christians because as we come into God's family, we become released from the burden of sin and guilt that held us in our previous lives. You see that idea in Romans 6. Any debts that we had prior to being adopted in the family of God have now been canceled. We even gain a new identity since we're in a new family. We carry on a new name. This is a new status that we gain. And this is a result of God's love and not anything that you could ever do. God just chose to save you. And that's, that's uh, definitely praiseworthy. All of our debts, our whole past, nailed to the cross. See that in Colossians 2.14. But it was, at an, it was at an infinite cost. It's not like God put your sins under the carpet. Someone paid for it. It was very costly. The Bible says that Jesus took every single one of your sins. You know those thoughts that you have in, in, you know, when you're driving? Or the thoughts that you have uh, when you're lusting? The thoughts that you have when you're angry or jealous or you do the wrong thing? The little things that you call little, God, Jesus Christ bled for. He took it all upon himself. Not one Small sin was, was, had slipped by him. All of it was paid for, and Jesus took it all. And the, the, uh, the payment was brutal. Now, being that Jesus was treated as a sinner on our behalf, Jesus, right, he, after, after he took the penalty of sin, God welcomed him back into fellowship, right? For a moment, he abandoned his son. Why did he abandon his son on the cross, right? Jesus yells, um, why have you forsaken me? Because God was treating him as, as if he was us, right? When, if we were to go to uh, hell and receive eternal damnation, there's a separation from God's good presence. And Jesus faced that separation. I don't even think Jesus was worried about the lashes. I think he was most worried about that separation, that momentary separation in his relationship between God the Father. That was painful. Imagine what it feels like where all goodness is removed from you. And I always say this in Veritas. Uh, when you're sleeping in the middle of the night and you turn to that cold side of the pillow, it feels so good. You're so comforted. You have that quilt that you put in between your legs and you sleep so good. Those are graces. Those are little, little, little momentary tastes of goodness that God is just pouring out to you. He doesn't have to give you that. Or when you eat that, um, like, mashed potatoes with steak. Um, God, God could have made food to where uh, you just eat it and you're healthy and it doesn't taste like anything. You just put it in your mouth and, and you're healthy. You get your energy. But God said, I- I'm going to make that taste good. I'm going to give you taste buds. Those are hints of God's goodness and his grace. 
in hell that's stripped away from you. He doesn't have to give you taste buds. He can just give you juice to where you survive, give you the bare minimum. But he allows you to enjoy the, the, the delicious uh, filet mignon. Uh, he allows you to enjoy the air, the, 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 the nature. And here's the thing. If you're not in Christ, that's not free. You're going to get your check in the end. And God is going to make sure that you pay every single cent. But in Jesus Christ, he bore all those sins, all, all the sins of you not appreciating uh, all the goodness of God. He took it upon himself. And what he faced was the stripping away of all that goodness. All that was taken away from Christ in that moment on the cross. And he did that so that you would be sons. So that you would not only be saved and have a ticket to heaven, but that you would have a ticket to heaven and you would also partake in the rich inheritance of all of God's goodness without anything blocking it. You get to indulge in the goodness of God in heaven with nothing interfering, no sin blocking it. And he did that for you. You don't deserve it, but he did it. And you're now sons. And uh, it says in Hebrews 2.11 that after all that, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. How, how strange. Jesus calls us brother. And this is, this is uh, an immense uh, amount of grace that we do not deserve. Let's look at point number three. The privileges and benefits of adoption. As the, as the firstborn would have received an inheritance from his father, Jesus, as God's son, obtained a glorious inheritance from the father, not only for himself, but all who are in Christ. If you're in Jesus, you receive this. We enjoy several privileges directly resulting from our adoption. First, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit, right? Which is essentially the doctrine of assurance. In Christ, we have assurance of salvation. Uh, just to give you a taste, because I'm going to talk about assurance later on in another lesson, but just to give you a taste of this benefit. We as children of God now receive the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit that indwells in us bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see that in Romans 8. His Spirit is leading us, and we can be assured that He will lead us to eternity with God. Uh, if the Spirit dwells in you, you're saved. You're not going anywhere. God will make sure that you make it. And that's one of the greatest gifts. Another privilege is deliverance from fear of condemnation. Apart from Christ, you have no assurance about anything, really. But specifically speaking, in, in matters of, of salvation um, or, or care, for that matter, that God would take care of you, you have no no, no, uh, no assurance in that. But specifically speaking, in salvation, one of the privileges of being saved and being adopted is, is a deliverance from, from fear of condemnation. We're no longer under the bondage of the law that exists in the old man. We now have the spirit of freedom. We see this in Romans 8.15 where it says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit indwells us and makes our awareness of this divine acceptance. And it makes it so real that our fear of condemnation is, 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 um, 
is put away or we're able to put it away with, with that uh, understanding. Another privilege of, adop- of, of adoption is our heirship with Christ. This privilege includes both suffering with him and being glorified together with him. Christians find it a, an honor to be united with Christ, to suffer for the cause of Christ. Um, because we know that in Christ, as we suffer, we'll, we'll, we'll also be raised with him. These are just, just blessings and benefits from being a, ch- a child of God. It says in Romans eight seventeen, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. The last privilege, uh, and there's many more, but just for the sake of time, is that we can now call God Abba Father. In uh, Judaism during the first century, uh, men rarely referred to God as Father and certainly didn't use the affectionate term Abba. They didn't speak that way. Yet we now can speak to God in the same affectionate and close way in which Jesus did. Everything Jesus was able to do, um, we've now received. Uh, Jesus, uh, we see in Mark 14, Romans 8.15, Galatians 4, this language between the Son and the Father. And now we can participate, can partake in that because we're in the Son. This is significantly special to me because I'm aware that there are many believers who struggle with their genealogy. Uh, and I, I was one of those, those people. Some of you come from broken homes. Some of you come from homes of abuse, homes of sin. Maybe you feel unclean from what or who you were or where you come from and would only wish to break that tie. Maybe some of you fear that your identity is rooted in who you think you are based off of how you were raised or a sin habit that, that may run in your family. Some of you may wish for a new start, yet in Christ, you are now broken away from that. And this isn't wishful thinking. This is a fact. Christ really died for that. Christ died and resurrected so that you would be broken away from your, uh, your f- father the devil, if you will, from your past life, that you would be adopted in this new life. He really died and he really resurrected. And God has removed you from your old self and adopted you into a new family with a new status, a new identity, and a new heart. And again, this is a privilege that only those who have been adopted in Christ can enjoy. Uh, And with this, I'll conclude. There are countless of benefits in adoption. We can go on. Uh, The Bible talks about how angels uh, long to look into the mysteries that are found in the gospel Uh, Because there's so much to unpack and so much um, implications um, of what Christ did on the cross on our behalf. And one of them is adoption. And even within adoption, there's just so many um, implications. Now, it would have been more than enough for God to simply justify us. Yet he not only justifies us, but he lavishes upon us all the riches of his grace. This is the picture that we see as the prodigal son returns to his father. You remember that story? Right? The prodigal son returns to his father and expects nothing but rebuke. Right? He asks for forgiveness, and if he would receive it from his father, he would only expect to be a slave in his house. Right? Yet, what do we see in that story? We see 
the father run to him, to his son, and rejoices with him as he has returned to him. He calls for celebration. He kills the fattened calf to eat and rejoice. They clothe him with the best robe, shoes on his feet, and place the finest ring on his finger. And this is what we see with us in adoption, right? We're not only forgiven, but we're treated as sons of the Most High. And this we do not deserve. But we must also remember that Christ did not deserve the way that he was treated, but he did it for us. He, was, uh, he, he took the punishment for our sins. And yet he laid his life down so that we would partake in that reward, that, uh, that the abundance of God's riches um, that, that he, he lays and lavishes upon us. Um, and because of that, we, we've been given all of that um, by virtue of our union with Christ. So praise, praise God for Jesus Christ, who, who is our elder brother, um, who calls us brother, uh, and, and through him, we've been adopted, and, and we're not just saved, but we are children of God. Uh, that concludes the study. Next week, we'll discuss the topic of sanctification. But um, is there any questions on the topic or comments on, on anything I said yet? Yeah, it's, it's just really encouraging to see how the Bible talks about adoption kind of spanning throughout history, past and into the future. Like we read through Ephesians 1 where it talks about we're predestined for adoption before yeah. the foundation of the world. And then we see in 30 AD Christ accomplishes the means for adoption for right. us in, yeah. in redemption. And then when we're regenerated, we start to understand the benefits of this adoption. And there's yeah. no fear of condemnation. That's right. And then we know in, in the future that the the evidences of this adoption are going to become a reality and, and our glorification. Amen. So it's, it's kind of cool to see how it spans through, yeah. through eternity past into the future. Yeah. And that kind of helps us get a bigger understanding and appreciation for God's love for us. So this isn't something that yeah. has happened just when we were regenerated. This is something that's been going on for a long, long time. Amen. Amen. That's, that's so cool the way you laid it out. Um, you can almost see the, the, the uh, Trinity at work in, in all of it, right? God ordaining it. Uh, Christ accomplishing it, like you said, uh, and then the Spirit, uh, you know, applying the work of Christ to us, and and it, it, again, it started from the end, and, and I mean, started from the beginning, and it's 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 something throughout uh, Christian history, uh, biblical history, redemptive history. That's a good point. Um, got time for one more? Yeah.
that person's child and my child, there's going to be a special. special interest in me saving my child. And so I just think it's important for us to think through how we present the gospel, yeah. what we do, because we do want, want to give people the idea that they possess certain uh, privileges that only belong to people of God Amen. before they repent and place their trust in Christ to receive those privileges. That's right, yeah. Amen. That's a great point. I think it's very important and relevant to what we see a lot in today's time. Just everyone a child of God, and that's not that's not true. Well, y'all, yeah, yeah, please. You said the specific, um, like you, you worded it really well when you were talking about what he was saying about about the children of God. Mm-hmm. We are specifically the children of God, but it is interesting to see, like in Acts seventeen, when mm-hmm. Paul is in Athens, like I was the gospel, that. he said, you know, we are. He was talking to unbelievers, are the children of God in a right. generic sense. That's right. That God made us all, but you yeah. made it very well, and he did too, yeah. was the fact that we are in that general sense all humankind, God's offspring, that he created us. That's but right. But to be a specific beloved of God, an yes. heir to the throne, you know, I mean, an heir to the kingdom, uh, co-heirs with Christ, all right. that, you have to repent and believe God. That's right. Yeah, you, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. To add to that, just, just to say that, God cares about all of his creation because all of his creation is to the end of his glory. Yes. So a re- one of the reprobates is to God's glory because he's going to use that yes. person to demonstrate his justice and That's his right. wrath and his holiness. So, so yes, God has a concern and a care for all that are not his elect. Right. But is it, you have to make that distinction. It's not giving a bunch of privileges away, giving a bunch of things away that do not belong to the unbeliever. Amen. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. Hey, y'all, let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we recognize that we do not deserve even forgiveness, yet you've predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. And as we read in Ephesians 1, we, we've been given much more than we could ever deserve. Uh, this was costly to your son. And I, I often wonder why you would even be mindful of us, yet we know that all things are done for your glory. Therefore, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in us, that we would never overlook this amazing blessing of being able to be called, being able to be your children and call you Father, and that this truth would uh, cause us to live as, as real sacrifices of worship to you. May our worship to you, even today, reflect the heart of thanksgiving for this. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.